James, tell me you don't think I did this. Tell me you know that. I may as well have done it, though. I brought Adrian into her life. I did that. I shouldn't have walked out on you and left you alone. I failed you. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 168 today and I am starting to feel a little chill in the air that could only mean it's Halloween time. What do you have for us today? Well, it's about to get downright cold in here because I chose The Invisible Man from 2020, directed by Lee Winnell with Elizabeth Moss, Aldous Hodge, Storm Reid, Harriet Dyer, Michael Dorman, and Oliver Jackson Cohen. This version of the H.G. Wells story is about a woman who escapes an abusive relationship, but even after the apparent death of her abuser, believes that he is still stalking her. Okay, let's get something out of the way right away. Would you rather have the power of flight or the power of invisibility? I'm going to go with flight. Good. Then we don't have to get a divorce because you're not a creepy weirdo. <laughs> Does invisibility powers make you a creepy weirdo? Oh yeah, this is a good litmus test for all the people in your life, listeners out there. You can sort people into two piles very easily with this test. The people who desire flight, they desire liberation and exhilaration, adventure, exploration. I had a recurring dream forever that I was flying through the air. I had it so many times when I was a kid. I have the same sort of lucid dreams too, or at the very least being able to glide long distances and being able to control it. It's one of the best feelings in the world. Now on the other side, there are probably a small percentage of introverts that would choose invisibility for the practicality of never having to be seen. I can understand that. But the vast majority of people who choose invisibility creeps and peepers. They just want to get away with stuff, I guess. So I'm glad you chose wisely. Well, thank you for that bit of levity <laughs> before my introduction, because we might need some more levity afterward. Now, unlike Grey's Anatomy, I'm doing my introduction at the beginning why this film means so much to me, because I kind of just want to get it over with. So bear with me while I talk about why this was a difficult watch for me and probably for others as well. If you're a regular listener, you may have heard me talk about this issue in the Smile Jenny You're Dead episode or in Bits and Bobs and other episodes. But if you're hearing this for the first time, here goes. I was stalked by a stranger when I was about 21 years old. I don't know how or why this person chose me, and I will never know. For the period of several months, I wondered every time if I would step outside my door or just be at work, if he would be there, if he would try to hurt me or even just talk to me. It was really terrifying. I discovered that he was also simultaneously stalking at least two other women, one of whom was a single mom, which was very scary. How did you find that out? It's a very bizarre connection. He sent us letters. So this was a while ago. And in the letters, he mentioned other people by name. Mm. He sent a letter to this other woman, mentioned me. She found me in the phone book. She called me and shared her story. I never thought about the names that he mentioned in my letters, that they might actually be real people, and then discovered this whole other series of stories happening. And for her, it had been going on for a very long time, at least two years. But I went to the police, and a warrant was issued for him, along with a restraining order. But if you've been through this process before, you know that because he never answered the door, there was really nothing the police could do. It's not like there was this dragnet over the city waiting to capture him. When I went to court to get the restraining order, I had to be in the same room with him. And the worst part was 
hearing his voice, because like I mentioned, there were only letters before that. It was really difficult. In one of the letters he sent me, it seemed to imply that we either had a child together or were going to. He didn't serve any time in jail. And I moved away not too long afterward, which was helpful. But I have found that the issue has come up periodically and I have to deal with it because I didn't really get on top of it at the time. At this point in my life, though, several decades removed, I have reached a point where I feel like I was no longer retroactively dealing with it, but feeling more proactive, though still, there are movies and TV shows that will affect me deeply like this one. Right, because we had a similar issue most recently when we tried to watch the original Cape Fear, which I think once you see it, won't disturb you nearly as much as this. It's a different kind of energy once all is said and done. I know that's impossible for me to truly accurately predict, though. And what I'm curious about is, is it equally impossible for you to say for sure from film to film or viewing to viewing when you know this theme is part of the deal? Can you put a finger on what makes it bearable sometimes and not at others? I really can't. And if I sat down to think about it, possibly I could find that common thread. It could also have to do with, you know, other stresses in my life. If it's just a bad time, maybe even something like the original Cape Fear, which was so difficult for me because it felt too close to home, maybe something like that is too much. I can tell you what bothered me in Cape Fear. And I saw the Robert De Niro version a long time ago, and that one's viscerally difficult. The original Cape Fear starts out, I don't know if you remember, with a lot more of the legal procedure part. Right. Where the complete unfairness of the situation is laid bare. And perpetrator and victim have to be in the same room together. And I do know when we saw this in the theater, you had to hold my hand the whole time. And I was sweating pretty hard from start to finish. And I knew that I still wanted to discuss this film because I loved it, but that didn't mean that I was sure that I was ready to watch it again. And for our schedule, I was considering watching this by myself, and I'm so glad I didn't because it was very difficult again. We had to incorporate some breaks. And around the 27-minute mark, again, I can't remember exactly what was happening, but I started to struggle. I had a very big cry, and then I was okay to move forward. So after all of that, thank you very much for watching it again with me and being by my side. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Of course I'm going to do that anytime. Okay, now that I've gotten all of that out of the way, are we ready to talk about the film? Yes. I don't know about you, this feels like a million years ago. We saw this in 2020, and it ended up being one of the last films in the theater that we saw before the pandemic. Yeah, we didn't exactly go out on the most positive note with that. A triumphant note, eventually, but a brutal and unforgiving journey to get there. Kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Very apropos. Yeah, you know, I'm going to inject as much fun into this as I can for Thank you, hopefully. Thank you. I appreciate it, because I'm already sweating pretty hard. So let's talk about some background of the film. Now, I mentioned Lee Winnell directed this. He also wrote it. And I was reviewing his filmography, and I wouldn't have initially thought of him for this film, but he clearly brings a lot to the project, especially that refocus on the perspective of the victim. That was all his idea, and he completely changed the thrust of this project, and I'm so glad he went in that direction. Yeah, it's a brilliant and timely choice. It's not about him. It's not about the invisible man. It's about her. And I don't know that it would have made as much sense to make that shift in the versions that came before. It works especially well here because there's also a major shift from the Claude Rains version, for example, in terms of intent. In the 1933 adaptation of this, he discovers the secret of invisibility accidentally and he's actively trying to undo it until it drives him insane. In this case, it's his sole aim from the beginning because he's a creep. This Invisible Man was originally conceived as a part of what's called Dark Universal, which was about taking the world of the Universal movie monsters and reimagining them. But this was a planned series. It started with The Mummy in 2017 with Tom Cruise, but that wasn't successful. And apparently there was a Bride of Frankenstein in 2019, which I didn't even know existed. 
So the Invisible Man instead changed to a standalone story. I would love to see a sequel. I have an idea about that, but that's going to come much later. Oh, okay. I can't wait to hear. To me, it seems like they started to do all this all the way back with things like Van Helsing. And I don't like the idea of them following the Marvel model for these. Making a whole cinematic universe. Yeah, it feels so cynical and by the numbers. This is the only one of the films associated with that that I have enjoyed. We already got a great Creature from the Black Lagoon update and everything but name with The Shape of Water. The one idea that I'm still intrigued about that's kind of floating around with this unrealized is Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sign me up. I want tickets to that. That I would like to see, but I want to see it without CGI or extravagant effects. I want to see the difference realized mostly in performance, like Frederick March. I would like to see that on the stage. Not the musical version and all that stuff that's happened, but just Russell Crowe doing the part. Russell Crowe and David Hasselhoff switching roles every night. (laughs) That would be good. And Sebastian Bach. Don't forget about him. So uh, speaking of low budget, this film's budget was about $7 million, and that's been pointed out in relation to the film, but I never think about that because it doesn't look cheap to me. And the other day, you were watching sort of a behind-the-scenes making of about Salem's Lot, and I think that they said the budget for that whole thing back in the 70s was $3 million. Yeah, the budget for Salem's Lot was $4 million, but those were $1979. With as much technical trickery as there is in this, at this point, $7 million sounds like a bargain to me. It looked to me like exactly what it was, though, ultimately. It was an efficient movie where they spent their money wisely, but no one is going to confuse this with Lawrence of Arabia in terms of visual splendor. Sure, good point. It ended up earning something like $149 million, and that's pretty amazing. Well, something I wanted to ask you while we were watching this this time, I was thinking, does the name tip the hand too much, especially in the beginning? What if they had called it something else? Like Get Out? That was taken. Yeah, I kind of wish it had been called something else. Maybe not Get Out, but something that really didn't lead you down this path, that we didn't know that was the hook. Because to me, that would have just amplified her paranoia in the first act until we know the extent of his scheme. Mainly, I like the idea of withholding that piece of information from the audience because it would have given us a harder decision to make about how we felt about her decisions and state of mind. See, that's why I actually like it, because it forces us to question her place in the story and then question our questioning and what we think we can believe or are prepared to believe. I think we're saying the same thing, just two different ways. Could be. I talk about this in a minute, too. I just like where the movie starts in the overall story. In other films, this would be the culmination of the action instead. So everything, to me, is a step away from what we are trained to expect. Okay, you ready to get into the film proper? Yeah. Well, I love the opening soundscape and visual of the water crashing against the boulders. So I have a little bit of a metaphor that maybe I extended too far? Tell me what you think. The water is this fluid force that continues to strike against an immovable object, but the immovable object doesn't know that it's actually being stripped away one rock at a time, and the water will always prevail. It will always be mightier. She's the water, by the way. Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor. Anytime you can work that great a metaphor into an opening credit sequence, that's pretty impressive. And other than that, the credits are just cool anyway. So next we meet Cecilia, and she is about to execute her escape plan, leaving this fortress while her partner sleeps. She has clearly been planning this for a while, and we can just tell by how she moves that this must go perfectly. She makes it out of the house and through the woods and to a road while she waits for her ride, which is her sister. But her partner has woken up and is after her and attacks her in the car before they can get away. Immediately, Lee Wanell is working on these horror tropes. How does her ride not know just to step on the goddamn gas? You get in that situation and you say, go, we go. Uh, yeah, no duh. Especially at four o'clock in the morning, especially in the woods by your house that you're fleeing. It's that good kind of frustration, though, when it comes to horror films. It's one of those moments that I think unites an audience because we are all feeling the same thing, and that thing is drive. So it's suspenseful from the word go. 
and the use of suspense in this opening sequence especially is great. Did you think that she was going to get out in the opening? Those first few minutes, those are as tense as anything I've ever seen. And we're given so much backstory without exposition. It reminds me quite a lot of the Shadow of a Doubt opening with the character building. Yeah, I was on the edge of my seat for sure. Because, like I mentioned, the escape is just the beginning of the story. That dog bowl jump scare is legit. You saw me yeah. jump out of my seat. When you're this traumatized, everything is a reason to jump. Which makes me think the way our dogs react to the doorbell, maybe there's something we should know about them. Why? It's hardly ever for them. <laughs> <laughs> Threw a little norm joke in there for you. But you're absolutely right about this backstory without a lot of exposition. I really do admire the skill in wordless storytelling in this sequence. We understand the unspoken language of everything she is doing, which leads me to ask, is this an indictment of where we have come to as a culture that the signposts of abuse are so readily understood? I guess I'm going to fall back on it's actually good storytelling. The house, you call it a fortress, this implies he obviously has money. That equates to resources, even enough to fake his own death, we later learn. Contrast that with the meager contents of her bag and what they judiciously show us. That lets us know that she is carrying everything in her life in just two hands. It's such a power imbalance, it's not even close to a fair fight. A lot is communicated in just a few minutes without a single word. So I'm going to offer a little quibble on this, and this is from an audience test screening. They actually made a note that the director disregarded. That they felt like they needed more in the beginning to understand what she had been going through. Because we don't even fully see Adrian's face. Good. Yeah, exactly. So how do you feel about the lack of evidence beyond these signposts that you and I at least understand initially of his abuse? Do you need to see it to believe it? And is that also reflected through the character of the sister who, when told to drive, does not drive plus all of her other behaviors? I don't need to see it to believe it. I'm glad he disregarded that note. Those people in that audience were simpletons. I'm with you. I don't know how anybody could not get it, like you say. Yeah, I didn't see it, so I can't imagine it. Come on. As for the sister, I harbor particular feelings about that character, none of them very charitable. But I think her responses are unique to that character and their relationship. She's not a good audience surrogate for me, unless the audience is all assholes. Okay, got it. So you don't think that that's necessarily reflective of how other people view abuse, that even mental or emotional abuse is somehow less traumatic? I think it has a lot more to do with a competitive sibling dynamic in that particular instance. The sad part, though, is, though I don't need to see it to believe it, obviously, some people do. Even worse, some people see it and still don't believe it, or even understand what they're seeing. Extricating yourself from these situations is incredibly hard. True crime is littered with stories of these kinds of opportunities for escape going wrong and the legal system being no help. We saw the police hand one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims right back to him, derisively laughing it off as a lover's quarrel. And we're seeing it unfold right now, basically in real time with this Gabby Petito story. In general, is something less scary to you if there is no physical violence? No, not necessarily. And I don't need it in the intro especially to establish the truth of what she's trying to say. But I will say it is essential from a horror storytelling standpoint that we see a burst of it at some point to show what the villain is capable of in terms of crossing boundaries. Ah, good point. It is a visual medium after all. And a visual representation of the severity of the situation makes the stakes undeniable regardless of our grasp of subtext. So Cecilia moves in with her friend James and his daughter Sydney, and she shares with James and her sister how their relationship changed, how the abuse and violence progressed. And she is clearly struggling to move forward, but she's starting to progress forward a bit. The big bolt out of the blue here is her finding out that he has committed suicide. I love the way this plays across Elizabeth Moss's face because so many conflicting emotions are happening here. Do you dare believe it's true? Do you dare to be happy or feel relief? Nope. Not even close. Not until he's dead and you've seen the body, or better yet, put the bullet in him. Even with his death, 
You can't turn on a dime from trauma like that. And with that announcement of his death, there comes him still trying to get the final word, which is this forced meeting with his brother reading his will. And we learn that Adrian has bequeathed to Cecilia $5 million. So this trust fund, do you take that money if you feel like you can do good with it? I think that is an amazing question. I personally would absolutely take the money, but I would also completely understand any number of reasons for not taking it. And that's maybe changed a little bit. You know that I watch a lot of American Greed and other true crime stuff, especially that horrific Harvey Weinstein documentary. And it makes me really rethink how I used to view the whole idea of settlements and civil litigation, hush money. On the one hand, these pieces of trash think that they can make anything go away with their money. And in part, they are absolutely right because the criminal justice system is still catching up. And for the victims, money is sometimes the only thing they can actually get. So who cares if the good you do is for yourself or for others? I fall generally into the same camp as you, I think, in this. Particularly in this case, I say, if you're going to think about him all the time anyway, why not take the money? At least make him pay the rent for the space he is taking up in your head. Ah, yes. Well, even after the money and the will and the suicide, Cecilia is still feeling like she's maybe not alone. There are signs, some indications, but can she really trust her senses? So we teased this a little bit earlier. What do you think people are more predisposed to believe? That he could be haunting her as a ghost? This is a horror movie. Or that a person would go so far to control and harm another person? Or that she's just crazy? People are more predisposed to believe what they think they see and understand. And that's limited. Do you believe your eyes? Just look at the restaurant sequence to answer that question. Everyone in that restaurant obviously thought they knew what they saw. And it's a little ironic and a really nice twist, actually, where the moment that everyone else thinks they know what they saw is also the moment that has to bring her the most clarity. This is the true nothing left to lose moment. There is now no misunderstanding the links he will go to. I don't know about you, but as much as we were staring at walls, I really thought I started to see shadows, possibly. I mean, I was really looking. It's a great effect. Staring at a flat space and just imagining. Well, let's talk about that. The way that horror movies use empty space. The good ones, anyway. The classic open door at the end of a long hallway. This is even happening in our house right now. There's a door that we typically keep closed that is open right now, and every time I walk around that corner, I don't like it. And there are some great examples in our personal favorites that exploit what's not there and how your imagination fills that in. Think about the swimming pool sequence in the original Cat People. My favorite is probably when Marilyn Burns makes it to the gas station in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and has to sit there staring at that open door for what feels like forever ever waiting for a ride out of there. In this case, it's all about how they frame a room as if someone is occupying that empty space, but we can't see them. They devote physical space to this idea. And then that hint of breath in the cold that finally reveals his presence, that oh, is a great choice. That kills me. Because true dread is a cold and empty feeling. Now, since we're talking about all the things that work really well, I am reminded of the one thing that takes me out of this movie that happens here. Oh, tell me. My one instance of struggling with my suspension of disbelief, someone has a landline in 2020? And they're not 75? Yeah, it's not one of those jitterbug phones? Is that what they're called <laughs> with the huge numbers on it? I think there's it? a jitterbug, yes. <laughs> I expected her to hang up that phone and then get out the TV trays and watch Wheel of Fortune and Matlock and go to bed, basically. Sounds like my afternoon. Yeah, I get it. I was trying to backpedal and make up a backstory of, okay, because he's a cop, he has to have this other thing, or I don't know. Yeah, anyway, yes, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But an invisibility suit does. Of course. Now, I want to talk about an idea that's voiced by a few characters, and it's about demonstrating your strength as a way to overcome adversity. This idea that if you can't get away from the bad guys, you're weak, the idea that if you can just be strong enough, you'll get through. And this don't let him win platitude. You talked about 
the amount of space someone occupies in your head. And it's all about if Cecilia focuses on him too much or by fixating on him, he becomes a crutch for her not to move forward. That who we allow to occupy our brains rent-free is something that we could control. Yeah, you hear them say, you know, he's not out there, I promise. Everyone thinks they know, but they don't know. Realistically, though, what do we expect people to say? In a position like this, you would like to offer support however you can. The problem is, unless you have been on the inside, you cannot fully grasp the magnitude or severity of the situation or that other person's reach, even if you think it's from beyond the grave. Where you and I may differ on this, though, I do think you can ultimately control it. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. You just have to go through the steps, and we're going to talk about what I think is that final step here in a moment. Okay. Well, let me know when we get to that. In the meantime, let me just sort of wrap up the story. It becomes completely clear that Adrian, in fact, is not dead. He's managed to make himself invisible and is still exerting control over her while making her appear to be crazy and what's worse, dangerous. He alienates her from James and Sydney through an assault against Sydney, alienates her from her sister, and then, in a stunning move which you refer to, slits the sister's throat while putting the knife into Cecilia's hands. She's put in a secure mental facility while she proclaims her innocence, but she also finds out she's pregnant and, through Adrian's brother, gets a way out. So he's still exerting this control. Through the brother, he says, you've been punished enough. Just have this baby and come back to me and everything will be fine. This may be a thing that a lot of people who have never been in a situation like that haven't confronted head on before. It's not about who she is or what she represents. It's all about him being told no. And he's controlling her even down to reproduction, which is a particularly relevant issue where we are in Texas right now. And this really works best because she moves through this. It goes from terrorizing, to sabotage, to cat and mouse, to finally a battle of wills. And this reflects what you were saying with the water and the stone in the beginning. This unfair playing field from the beginning slowly levels as the story progresses. And like you mentioned, this is also the first moment we get confirmation, for sure, of his brother's tacit participation in this scheme. To me, that opens up myriad new avenues for manipulation. The big one obviously being that his brother is also potentially going out on these homicidal errands in his stead. Now, do you think that everything except that very final instance was Adrian the whole time, or was it some of one and some of the other? I'm not sure. I think the bulk was Adrian. I really do. I like to think it's both, because as part of his scheme, it adds a whole new sinister level of manipulation. Essentially, it would make her doubt herself more than ever, in the sense that even if she knows she's right and he's still alive, not even she would believe he could be in two places at once. And it gives everyone else surrounding her, her ostensible support system, an easy way out to say, okay, now it is really over. So we've given the rundown of victims here, and Adrian, he's preying on innocence, including Cecilia, from the beginning. But that even takes on a darker dimension once he actually targets a child. And do you consider that child to be Sydney or her baby, or Specifically both? Specifically Sydney in okay. this case. And so what I'm wondering is, do you leave behind fear once you get angry enough, either as a viewer or a character? I think it sure does help. You and I both have anger running through us as kind of a foundational emotion, and it makes you move forward. This is what I was talking about earlier when I was mentioning the steps to go through and getting to this final one. You have to get mad enough. And this is what I would feel like would be the final straw for me. It's a strategic mistake on his part. He overplays his hand, and I think it suits the character. It's a nice piece of writing. Only someone that narcissistic would think they can maintain control no matter what. I mentioned that nothing left to lose moment at the restaurant before. That's where she first begins to understand it. This is where she actually begins to put it into practice. People are at their most dangerous when they are at their most desperate, when their backs are against the wall. And that's where he has put her, and he doesn't account for it because, in his arrogance, he underestimates her. But if I am this angry, I don't have time or space to devote to being afraid anymore. And once I cross that threshold, it's done. You're not going to put me back in that spot. Now, going back to the horror tropes thing again, do you feel like they made this sister so unappealing as to feel expendable for the audience? 
I mean, she is definitely awful throughout. To me, it's more about the trope of the removal of the support system, along with, you know, we want to see all the terrible people get killed. It's sort of like two tropes for the price of one. And I mentioned this briefly before. It does kind of dovetail nicely. It makes for this theme of parallel sibling rivalry that each family has. So we're now hurtling towards the finish. Adrian makes his big move in the hospital. He's forced to because Cecilia draws him out by slitting her wrist to kill her and the baby. And he goes on a kill crazy rampage and she is able to partially reveal his invisibility suit, which is super awesome, by the way. I love that suit. She escapes and heads to James's house because, as you mentioned, Adrian has threatened Sydney. And they're able to shoot him, but this intruder is revealed to be Tom. And again with this trickery, Adrian is discovered tied up in his own basement. But Cecilia knows the truth. She goes to him, and it's truly frightening to me because this is the first time we have seen his face clearly. And she has to face him. So what did you think of the ending? This final showdown is tense. In this shitbag, he is pulling every page in the narcissistic manipulator playbook, all the way down to him telling her good choice when she says she'll have the steak. He's only complimenting himself because she is picking from a range of options that he has given to her. I hate him so much in that moment. How do I like the ending? He looks like a rat and I'm glad he's dead. I relish the look on his face as the last thing he will ever know on this earth is that she has defeated him. He lost. And she saves the dog. Win-win. Yeah, I loved it too. Not only do we see him get hurt, but we see the life leave his eyes. And to me, it is incredibly satisfying. Though I have to ask, is that too much bloodlust on my part? And did you feel like her character was alienating at the end? Should she have been put in peril like other final girls? My answer is no. She was in peril. Anytime you're in proximity to this guy, you're in peril. To bring it back around to the choice that I actually offered you in the beginning, I love the ending for another reason. It's freedom. She has chosen flight. Two different interpretations of that word now. And you have to know how much fan I am of this idea that if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Hell yeah. So yes, I like the ending. It's foreshadowed just enough as to not be completely out of left field, but enough has gone on in the interim that we haven't thought that much about her having the other invisibility suit. And it's a clever bit of turnabout is fair play, mirroring the restaurant scene, echoing that very moment that made her willing and able to go this far. Just like in the restaurant, there are witnesses, but those are his surveillance cameras this time. He's hoisted on his own invisible petard. And now you have to believe what you see. Right. She has turned the optics against him. There's no way you watch that footage and think anything happened except a bizarre suicide. The unblinking eye never lies. One thing I wonder about, though, the last thing I'm thinking as we cut to the credits, do you think she keeps that baby? Whew, that is a difficult question. I don't know the answer to that. I truly do not know the answer to that. And I like that because that to me suggests ultimate freedom to make your own choice. Here's where my sequel idea comes in. Invisibaby. The baby has a suit or the baby's born invisible in the suit from the womb? Well, you gotta make it so complicated. Okay, you just put the dog in there. It's Invisibaby and the dog and I will watch that. The reason it comes to mind though really seriously is that psychopathy is among the most hereditary of disorders so do you take that chance that you have a little adrian i really don't know the answer i really don't or just take the chance that the baby has adrian's eyes or adrian's face little rat face <laughs> okay so we've come to the end of the film let's get into our wrap-up do you think this film would have had the impact that it has had if it had been made any time prior to 2020? There are one or two places in history that it could have come along, but I think it was vital to the success of this film that it came along exactly when it did. Yeah, the same for me. It feels like sort of the difference between sleeping with the enemy and her truly having a triumph. And I think we can more identify now with that concept of gaslighting. 
It's something that we talk about these days. And the acknowledgement, too, that he and people like him would never stop. They never have a reason to stop. We have to stop them. So I talked at length in the beginning about the film's impact on me, my connection to it. What was the impact on you? It obviously didn't have as much of a personal impact on me as it did on you. I'm not as invested in the theme, nor have I gone through anything similar. So the best I can do is sympathize, not empathize. Its impact on me is more about how it works for me in the framework of genre and exploitation fair. I think it's a great addition to the canon of traumatic abuse slash revenge films. To me, this slots in just as well with something like I Spit on Your Grave as it does the original Universal Monsters. I think that's a great touchstone. There's one that I wanted to mention, Hard Candy from 2005 with Elliot Page and Patrick Wilson. I definitely recommend that one. And I did watch Enough recently with Jennifer Lopez. I saw it in the theaters when it came out and just came back to it. This is obviously not as lurid or sleazy as some of those examples, especially I Spit on Your Grave. And we talked about that in the beginning. It doesn't have to explicitly show what she went through for us to understand, but it is down and dirty enough ultimately for us to be on the side of the vigilante and not balk at her eye for an eye solution to this problem. Well, were there any other films that you could think of showing the effects of abuse that we want to make sure we mention? The film about abuse that looms largest for me in my personal landscape, and this is probably just based on the generation I'm from, is The Burning Bed. Same for me. I think that was a watershed moment in the culture. There are horrific things that happen in that, and it spawned a million water cooler conversations and Donahue episodes. And I think the entire Lifetime channel, probably. Yeah. I want to say it was even featured in an issue of Weekly Reader that I saw when I was in middle school. This introduced the concept of battered woman syndrome to the culture at large, and the real Francine Hughes being found not guilty, essentially because the jury and judge believed in her, that is a major turning point in how we viewed and talked about incidents like this. It transformed the public's understanding of domestic violence and all the forms that it could take. Now, this idea about sympathizing, empathizing, do you think truly that we believe that anyone is vulnerable? Or do you think we think it wouldn't happen to us? Anybody else but us? Well, vulnerability, it certainly creates this undeniable tension in the movie. At every moment, Cecilia is vulnerable. Going up into that attic, for instance, that's the very first don't do it moment that we have. And to her credit, she goes right at it once she has made up her mind. I love that about this character. In our personal lives, though, I think we feel a mixture of both, like you were saying. We believe that it will happen to anyone else first. Most people don't like to think of themselves as vulnerable or weak. Of course I would know how to handle that. It's a death by a thousand cuts thing, though. It's insidious and gradual the way this happens in real life. Yeah, insidious is a word I used. I think it's so widespread. I really do think anyone is vulnerable at some point in their life or another. Yeah, the people that do this, they don't start by imprisoning someone. They undermine their confidence. They make them complicit in their own captivity. You basically enlist their own subconscious as your help. You don't have to tell them as often that they'll never get away if they are constantly doing that job on themselves for you. Some people are obviously more prone to that happening than others, but I don't think anyone is completely impervious to it. You just have to find the thing they respond to, and that's not hard to do with most people. People give themselves away. That's why I was stressing earlier that it's all about that breaking point. The faster you get there, the faster you can change this situation. I mentioned gaslighting earlier, and I don't think I'm wrong. It's a term that's become way more common, at least in the last five years. It can apply to systemic racism, bigotry of all kinds, to make us think that what we're experiencing is not really happening. And I love here that Adrian's field is optics, which is this word you see used in legal and political spheres to talk about perception and how to skew that perception to fit into a different narrative. Yeah, it's a brilliant metaphor, I think. This technology isn't mad science. It is the application of the everyday. This is in millions of homes. Look at how many doorbell camera shots you see on Nextdoor every day. Like I said, it's that unblinking eye, but this time it is turned against us. It's an extension of constant surveillance. In this case, reflecting the world back at us to conceal the true threat. And this ended up being, along with 
financially successful, incredibly critically lauded too. Was that a surprise to you? On paper, would you have thought they could pull it off? It was a little bit of a surprise because there is a long history of mainstream critics not taking the horror genre seriously or treating it with anything but disdain. Siskel and Ebert, they were notoriously bad about that. We just had that review from Owen Gleiberman a few weeks ago claiming that the original Halloween was a carbon copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, proving that one of the main critics for Variety literally knows nothing about the genre. Those two films couldn't be any more different. So with that in mind, yes, I am always pleasantly surprised when a well-made horror film gets positive attention from the critical establishment. It's a little less of a surprise because this was sort of tailor-made to capitalize on a lot of things that the culture at large was feeling and talking about. So there's a bit of a fish in a barrel aspect of it in that regard. Notice that didn't pan out exactly for the latest update of Black Christmas, though. The film still has to work. There has to be some skill and craft. You can't just turn in a paint-by-numbers project meant to tap into the zeitgeist. And this is how the Universal Monsters in the 30s worked so well. It's often better that these things just find their way into the story organically. They need to seep out because we can't help ourselves. It needs to reveal something bubbling under our collective surface, not just cash in on a hashtag. On paper, though, I wasn't 100% sure about this coming in, for sure. Especially because it's produced by Bloomhouse, which I would say, at worst, is maybe a person who is guilty of cashing in on something. I think... Bloom's heart is in the right place, but I do think his track record for me is maybe 50-50. Yeah, it's spotty. Some great highs and then some not-so-great stuff. Elizabeth Moss was the big plus for me. And then looking at Lee Wanell's track record, I could have gone either way. And then the lineage of Invisible Man sequels and updates certainly didn't fill me with confidence. Well, speaking of the greatest part of the film, Elizabeth Moss, she said in an interview about the release of this film on streaming very soon after its theatrical release because of COVID, she said she thought it was a good move, and if it could give you an escape, then great. I, however, felt <laughs> no escape whatsoever. I felt trapped from the first moment. How about you? First, let me reiterate what you're saying. Elizabeth Moss is top-notch. She can carry a project. She was far and away the best part of the movie for me. The film itself is a thrill ride, I would say, but it does not feel like escapist fare to me. You're white-knuckling this one most of the way through, and it is playing specifically on a frayed nerve for anyone who has gone through an even remotely similar situation. So then, is this a horror movie truly? Definitely. The simple definition is that the situation inspires genuine terror. I can vouch for that just from sitting on the other end of the couch from you. But it functions that way in the little moments, too. We've talked about some of the tropes already. We have an instance here of Smith's Grove Syndrome. If you pull up to an asylum in the dead of night and it's raining, just come back tomorrow. And then when Tom, the brother, is killed, we know it's early yet. You know it's not going to be that easy. So there are these little fun horror signposts that let us know where we are along the way. Yeah, for me, at the very least, it's incredibly suspenseful. It's got good jump scares. And apart from the story being modern horror, that if we don't live through it personally, we're lucky. But we probably know someone who has had to survive it. Apart from all of that, it's 1000% horror fun. Now, how do you feel about where this falls in the legacy of the franchise? Because this is one of our favorites of the original Universal Monsters, do you consider this a remake exactly? Because there is that overarching theme of megalomania. Not a remake, but a version of the story. A scientist has gone mad, or was born mad, made himself invisible, and wreaked havoc on those he professes to love, and then goes on a huge killing spree, just like the original. But in this, we truly get to explore that morality from a different perspective. So if it is horror, and it slots into the legacy of the franchise well, where does the horror truly lie? That they don't believe you? That you're wrongfully accused? What's the worst of it? I think the worst is the extension of they don't believe you. That you truly have no support system. You're completely on your own. He knows that he's gotten you down to rock bottom. He thinks he's actually gotten you below that. But you know you've got a little bit left in you, but can you deploy it in time? And like I was mentioning earlier, he will never stop until you stop him. You asked that good question earlier about when this was released and how that affected the reception of it. 
I think it's a great example of how horror is often a reaction to our cultural anxieties and then how that fits into the contemporaneous cultural landscape. But does that sometimes work to hamstring a film too? Are there obstacles here similar to something like trying to update Candyman? Some of the criticisms I've read of the new Candyman is that we don't need a Black Lives Matter horror movie right now. Could you say a similar thing about the Me Too movement in this case? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess I have to go back to something that you said earlier, that it really all does come down to the film itself. You can't necessarily plug into the zeitgeist at exactly the right time. The film itself has to work. And I haven't seen the updated Candyman. Yeah, neither have I. So I'm going to reserve my judgment on that one. I'm looking forward to it, though. I am, too, because I love the original, and I like the idea of it exploring a different side of the story, a different neighborhood, and an issue that I think you could never tell enough stories about. So I mentioned that this hit me just as hard, maybe harder than the first time I saw it. Did you have a different experience with this second viewing than the first? I think it was the same for me. I think I liked it a little more this time. I appreciated the way I noticed, at least, that Lee Wan L handled the tropes a little more this time. It was probably one of those cases where I knew what was going to happen so I could sit back and look for other things this time. I mentioned a few of those as we went along here, and I like that sometimes it plays right into the tried and true, those things that generate the universal frustration, for example, that I mentioned, and then sometimes there are updates or new twists on old ideas. Suicide attempt by lawyer's pen is a brilliant touch, for example. So it probably bumped it up a half star, three and a half to four for me, seeing more of those things at work. Yeah, interesting. The more I was reading about it, the more I liked it, even than those two viewings. The new thing that I noticed, based on these readings, all of Tom's clothing is a size or a couple sizes too small for him. If you notice, in the last scene in which he's actually clothed, not as the Invisible Man, his shirt is longer than his blazer arm length. So it's kind of fun to notice, oh yeah, there was so much work being put into this. Okay, so then how about your recommendation? For my recommendation, I am choosing Hollow Man from the year 2000. I still haven't seen it. That's directed by Paul Verhoeven, starring Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth Shue, my other favorite Elizabeth with an S in it, and Josh Brolin. It's about a scientist that has developed an invisibility serum for the military, and as often happens in these cases, the combination of his own arrogance, the mad science, and the isolation cause him to go berserk, and Verhovian excess ensues. So I'm assuming there's going to be some sexual element to it. A pretty disturbing sexual element to it. I kind of liken this to the Ed Norton Hulk movie. I feel like, give this time, appreciate the time period in which it was made, and you will have fun with this. The special effects are pretty great, I have to say. Bear in mind, I am approaching this as exploitation fair. It is Verhoeven, so there are some lurid, voyeuristic moments that are pretty unsavory, especially for a major studio blockbuster, which I think is kind of a left-handed achievement in and of itself. So here's my ringing endorsement. Relax, it's not as bad as a lot of people would have you believe. What about you? I picked a film that's been mentioned in the same breath as The Invisible Man, though I didn't realize it was actually released the year before. I only heard about it afterwards. And I also think it's a story that wouldn't have had the same impact if it had been released a few years before. And that is The Assistant from 2019, written, directed, produced, and edited by the Australian filmmaker Kitty Green. It stars Julia Garner, and it follows one day in the life of a lowly assistant to a mega-important film producer who is never seen on screen. We see his abuse through her eyes, and how so many people beyond the initial victims are also victimized, and how they try to help, or stay out of the way, or work to essentially perpetuate the opportunity for more abuse because no other path seems to yet exist for them. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Hollow Man and The Assistant. And that brings us to the end of episode 168. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. 
The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. During Halloween season, I also read short stories for fun too, and this year I am taking that from a book of ghastly little ghost stories I have. I have a short recommendation to throw in right here too. Don't Turn Out the Lights. It's an anthology of short stories. It's an homage to scary stories to tell in the dark by modern authors. In addition to the Patreon, we have also added a simple donation button to the website. So if Patreon is not your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header. And that's in the main drop-down menu if you're on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support so much. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time or sent well wishes regarding my health after the last episode, particularly our friends Spencer Seams and Leanne Kubich. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>